and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 73, Italian Checks, Greek Balances. When we last left Italy's invasion of Greece, of the three main invasion points, two had been turned back, one in western Macedonia, the second in the Pindus Mountain area. Meanwhile, the third penetration, furthest west, had been checked at the Kalama River. The Italians sacrificed a lot to cross the river, only to be pushed back, losing cohesiveness during their retreat. By mid-November, the Greeks had the momentum, but were suffering from the cold and lack of food, just as much as the Italians. But they were winning. As for the Italians, their proud, even haughty march into Greece was the polar opposite of their retreat. Besides the cold, deprivation, and the apparition-like Greek soldiers blocking every direction the Italians tried to make for, passing by their fallen comrades had to be the worst. Most of the Italian casualties, and there were a lot of them, didn't die from a bullet wound that would have left the body mostly intact, with the telltale sign of blood nearby. Most had died from Greek artillery fire, which tore arms and legs from the victim or ripped huge gashes in their flesh. For some of those lying on the ground, their heads were at an odd angle, or their faces were unrecognizable. The now dirty, anxious, and forlorn survivors had to walk past these specters and prayed not to join their ranks. The new Italian commander, General Carlo Gelesso, heard about the events of Taranto, but didn't have time to ponder its wider implications. He had his own situation to handle. The depleted Julia Division, the largest one when the invasion began, was still fighting just to give themselves room to retreat. And where there wasn't Greek troops shooting at them, or leaving a trap that would end with artillery raining down on the invaders, they were surrounded by snow, mud, or their own ever-increasing dead or dying pack animals. Some Greek counterattacks were better coordinated than others. Death either came quickly to the Italians, or, if an attempt was botched, the fallout of this would be battles lasting for hours, in which ammunition ran out and the struggle was hand-to-hand, with knives or whatever was to hand. And if the soldiers of the Julie Division managed to survive another skirmish, they would still be that fewer in number have less equipment and supplies, and believe less in their chances of getting out of this alive. And another attack would come soon enough. Again, the Greeks were more or less suffering from the same weather and lack of supplies, but they at least were accomplishing something. The Italian bodies mounted as the Greeks stayed on their heels. By the time the men of the Julia made it back to the Parati Bridge over their part of the Kalama River, they had lost a fifth of their own. And to their leader, they would have been unrecognizable by now. Still, a few days after reaching the river, Mussolini said of them in a speech back in Rome that they were, quote, stronger than ever and granite-like, unquote. Having crossed the bridge, the Julie division was ordered to organize itself, stop retreating, and check the Greek advance. The order of the day was now defense. But this decision coincided with General Papagos' 
of ordering a push along the entire Greek line, from the Adriatic Sea east to the Pindus area, north to the Morava Mountains, and further north to southeastern Albania. On the far right-hand side of the Greek line, in Albania, Greek highland troops, who knew the area well, used that knowledge to sneak past the imperfect Italian lines and reached their supply base at Karitsa. They carried out badly needed weapons, ammunition, and supplies. And now thus rearmed, the Greek troops in the surrounding area pushed the Italians further into Albania. Buildings were set alight, and anything the Greeks could not carry away was burned. The RAF came in to help, but Italian headquarters and other camps were switching hands so quickly that the pilots had to confirm who was now in control of what. So, when an intended location was discovered to be in Greek hands, the RAF pilots would focus on one of the long lines of Italian columns heading west and drop their bombs on them instead. The RAF, in the form of Blenheims and Gladiators from Egypt, were the first manifestation of Britain's promise to its ally. As the Greeks crossed into Albania, Mussolini ordered two more divisions, the Bari and Trieste, into action. The idea was to create a new secure front in the Karitsa area. The problem was that Karitsa practically belonged to the other side. So the plan was altered to have the reinforcements and retreating forces in Albania meet west of Karitsa, and then, in an organized fashion, stop the Greek advance. But this would take time, and the Greeks were already there. By November 12th, Hitler, getting daily reports independent of Mussolini's communications, saw the writing on the wall, even if his partner chose not to. That day, he signed Directive Number 18, which instructed the German general staff to start working on plans to invade Greece. It could not be helped. Operation Barbarossa had to be postponed. As for the Greeks, although General Papagos could not have known the specifics of Mussolini's new surge of two more divisions, military common sense would have suggested it. So, the Greek general had his own reinforcements sent to support the push on the Greek right. All along the Macedonian front, the 9th, 10th, and 15th divisions were to move. And at 6.30 a.m. on November 14th, they did just that, with the 15th leading the way. Holes were immediately punctured along the Italian line, which had been set up for offense, not defense. And the following confusion led to another general retreat. Meanwhile, the Bari division was moving up, racing to get into place. But because the men on either side of it were moving back, their flanks were soon unprotected. The makings of another catastrophe was in place. The Highland Greeks, who had equipped themselves with Italian weapons and supplies, were soon shelling Italian headquarters. Chaos reigned, and the Italian surgeons soon found themselves administering to the wounded without facilities, bandages, lint, or drugs. They, nor their patients, received mercy from the Greeks. Other Italian reinforcements had it no better. They would form up in March, thinking they had several more miles to go before coming under attack, only to be shelled from the unseen enemy 
one group of brave Italian soldiers landed in a German Junker at the airport at Caritza, thinking a quick dash would confuse and halt the Greeks. But instead, they found themselves being fired upon as soon as they exited the plane. Soon, those same men were loaded back onto the Junker, this time heading for a hospital in Rome. The exhausted Greeks, soldiers and civilians alike, heard that a British convoy had landed on the mainland on November 16th. They rejoiced until it was discovered that the men disembarking were not infantry, but rather non-combatants, such as a bomb disposal unit, intelligence units, and officers who had experience with modern weapons and mountain warfare. The Greeks saw their struggle differently, though. They didn't believe they needed what these men had to offer. The proud offenders might be using weapons from World War I, taken from Austria near the end of that war, but they already knew where the enemy was. So much for the intelligence units. They knew how to fight in the mountains. They lived there. So much for the officers. The only bombs they knew of were the ones raining down on the Italians. The tactics weren't the problem. It was the shortages of men and supplies. By November 18th, Mussolini was ready to try another tactic to salvage the situation. That evening, he was on the radio, proclaiming that the Greek victories were possible because of their hatred of Italy. But he promised to, quote, break Greece's back, unquote. But Texas could see what Il Duce was doing, but waited to give a reply. The next night, November 19th, Greece's back was unbroken, and it was the Italians who came to the conclusion that Caritza had to be abandoned. For Hitler, another line had been crossed. Mussolini received a letter from him the next day, November 20th. It stated that Italy's defeat, there was no other word for it, had displeasing psychological and military consequences. The Balkans were now unsettled, despite all Germany's efforts. Hitler had been skillfully manipulating those countries' fear of the invincibility of the Axis. But that was now gone. Next, British air power was now within range of the Ploesti oil fields and southern Italy, although the former was probably his real concern. Next, this defeat was a first for the Axis, and Churchill would use it to inspire his people. The Allies now had hope. As Marshal Graziani's limited invasion of Egypt clearly did not deter the British from attacking Italy or helping Greece, that impotent threat increased Hitler's anger. So again, probably for the fourth time, Hitler offered to help his ally, which Mussolini cautiously sidestepped. He also demurred on the suggestion of Germany taking Crete, even though there was no chance Italy was up to the task. Mussolini was obsessed with his parallel war. It's just that, at the moment, there wasn't much parallel about it. Even a land-based military thinker like Hitler could see that a British-controlled Crete threatened the lines of communication to North Africa. That Crete was allowing supplies from Egypt to Greece to continue. But what really got the Nazi leader worked up was that now, the Balkan states did not look on the Axis with unthinking fear. 
The words coming out of Yugoslavia had been yes, but were now perhaps and maybe. That part of the world had to be secure before the Soviet Union could be dealt with. The military successes of Greek troops inspired influential Americans of Greek descent. They soon organized to collect money for their countrymen fighting Axis forces. On November 20th, Harold Vanderbilt was chosen as the honorary chairman of the recently assembled Greek War Relief Association, or GWRA. Greek-born Spiros Skouras, the Hollywood film mogul, became the actual chairman. Soon after, Lady Huntington Astor became the chairwoman of the Ladies Auxiliary of the GWRA. Other groups sprung up and raised money, but, just as importantly, focused political power in the United States for their cause. And they soon had other reasons to rejoice. Greek units entered Koritsa on November 22nd. The local Albanians cheered on their Greek liberators. Metexas informed Greece and the world of this from Athens. The people in Athens cheered and paraded past the king's palace. In that same speech, Metexas congratulated the valiant Greek army as well as their British allies. He made special notice of the British Royal Navy, giving a heartfelt nod to the raid on Taranto. Any tension with the RAF or those non-combatants who recently arrived was forgotten. And finally, Metexas was ready to reply to Mussolini's previous radio address. He said, Greece was not fighting the Italian people, the heirs of Garibaldi. Mussolini and his soldiers had earned Greek hostility because he and they were trying to enslave Greece. By November 23rd, word of the collapse in Albania had reached most other Italian units. In response, the Italian retreat was literally along the entire line, from the Yugoslav border to the sea. Also, stories made it back to Athens at this time of the brutal treatment from the Italian forces against civilians as they retreated through villages and towns. The Greek soldiers' mood darkened. Mussolini would not have cared a jot about his men's behavior, but he did react when his air chief of staff, Francesco Pricolo, sent him a report that the men's morale was shattered. Because of the chaos and retreat, men from different units were jumbled together. Order was impossible. However, their main concern and gripe was that they felt they had been poorly led on the ground and insufficiently supported by Rome. They are humiliated by their defeat, but not in a way to want revenge. Depression had set in. But all this is hindsight. At the time, General Papagos, a conservative, prudent military leader, could not know of the true Italian situation. He was anything but relaxed as his men pushed along the entire line. To his thinking, what was to stop the Italians from laying traps for the Greek soldiers dashing headlong in pursuit? His men were equally struggling against the cold and running out of supplies and ammunition. It wouldn't seem to take much for a Greek reversal. But General Sola Koglo, commander of the troops of the right wing of Western Macedonia, was someone willing to take more risk 
in order to obtain more. He knew Papagos well enough to sense his commander's hesitation and suggested a compromise between slowing the advance and keeping the Italians on the defensive. What if the general attack kept moving forward, but maybe with a little more thought to consolidation and organization, but at the same time allowing a task force made up of four infantry battalions supported by an artillery unit to push toward Pogrades. This is where the Italians decided to make headquarters after losing Caritza. The plan was agreed to, and the battalions moved out, still excited by their achievements, despite their dwindling supplies. November 28th was a day of success for this task force, as well as the RAF. Because of the compromise plan between the two Greek generals, the men had quickly moved out and reached the new Italian headquarters before the defensive works could be completed. Thus, they were able to force the Italians once again to abandon their HQ. Also on the 28th, the RAF, made up of two squadrons, one of Hurricanes and one of Gladiators, brought down 27 various Italian aircraft. Papagos still wanted the British pilots to work more closely with his men on the ground, but for now, again, because of each one's success, the tension was overlooked. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. News of this latest defeat burned away any humiliation Mussolini might have felt in terms of Hitler. His anger was now focused on those Italian officers responsible. He told his head of intelligence through tight lips, quote, I want the truth because I'm going to have various heads blown off by firing squads, unquote. This was the Mussolini who had grabbed power in 1922. Decapitating a few heads might ease Mussolini's tension, but it would not restore his men's elan or stop a general retreat. Other changes were needed as well. On December 4th, General Ugo Cavallero replaced Bagdolio as chief of the general staff. Cavallero was more than competent, became a general at the relatively young age of 38, and was a brilliant academic. The first thing he knew before solving a problem is to find out what exactly the problem was. 
But when he received the detailed report he asked for, he knew there was very little he could do to improve the situation. The bullets and shells were not getting to the troops. Medicines were almost gone. The reserve rations, which should have lasted for a few more weeks at least, were lost or used up. Some of the Italian troops had run out of bullets during an engagement. The 8th Alpine Regiment of the Julia Division suffered an unbelievable loss of 80% of their numbers. The Bari Division, which had come in late as reinforcements, did not exist anymore. As Matthew Willingham stated in his marvelous book, Perilous Commitments, quote, what was intended to be a murder now looked like suicide, unquote. And the fallout of this worsening situation reverberated all the way back to Berlin. Foreign Minister Ribbentrop instructed his underlings on how to reply to any questions concerning Greece. Only the weather held back the Italians. It wasn't the Greeks. This setback was just a passing phase of an eventual Italian victory. These were, basically, the same excuses Mussolini had been feeding Hitler. On December 4th, Il Duce was in the depths of despair. He told Foreign Minister Ciano, quote, We shall have to ask for a truce through Hitler. Unquote. But his son-in-law shot right back. Impossible. The first thing the Greeks will ask for is a guarantee from Germany that Greece will be left alone. The Foreign Minister reinforced his position by stating, quote, Rather than telephone Ribbentrop, I shall put a bullet through my head. Unquote. The next day, December 5th, wasn't any better for the fascist leader. On that day, the RAF scored their most decisive victory to date. Their fighters shot down many Italian aircraft with no losses, while their bombers savaged retreating Italian troops. But if the Italian army could not strike back, the Italian Air Force could and did. After these successes of the RAF, Italian bombers struck at the Greek civilians on Corfu. British bombers retaliated by bombing Valona and Durazzo. But in Athens, the situation was dire as well. Metexas was not involved in the day-to-day -day running of the war, and there was a reason for that. He marveled at the outcome of events to date, but knew, in the end, it would all be for nothing. Italy would keep trying, had to keep trying, and they had the numbers. Or, worst case, Germany would become involved. Either way, his men were suffering, dying. Winter was only beginning, and the Greek soldiers were running low on supplies and strength. Near the end of December, he wrote in his diary, quote, I do not see a way out, unquote. And he wasn't only thinking of his men. Metexas was suffering from cancer, and he knew he would not live long enough to see an end to this. But perhaps, knowing what was coming, that might be best. He spent those cold December days depressed, thinking about his soldiers, Greece, and, being only human, himself. But Texas was right to pity his men. They were suffering. Now low on food and fuel, the civilians helped out as much as they could, but had little to spare. The Albanians also gave what they could, 
hoping their days of Italian domination were over. To show solidarity, Albanian troops would disappear into the woods before engaging the oncoming Greek soldiers. But the Albanian civilians continued to suffer, as they were now shot out of hand if found helping the enemy. As for the Greek casualties, if their wounds did not impede their ability to walk, there was a chance of surviving. But, if unable to move under their own power, the chances of getting to aid were limited. And finally, Greek mobility was reduced as the war went on. The starving men killed their pack animals for food. It probably isn't surprising that this successful Greek counteroffensive, combined with General O'Connor's coming Operation Compass, resulted in the Balkan countries seeing their situation in a more hopeful light. By early November, the Turks and Yugoslavs were secretly giving what they could to Greece. By November's end, Mussolini, desperate, offered Salonika to Yugoslavia if they came in on the side of Italy. Bulgaria was watching all of this just as much as anyone else, and by mid-December, it was obvious that Germany would have to rescue Italy. Equally obvious was the path Germany would take through Bulgaria. Hitler knew this would get Stalin's attention, the last thing he wanted, but it could not be helped. Another point in Britain's and its allies' favor was the resignation of U.S. Ambassador to Great Britain, Joseph P. Kennedy. He never believed in anything other than a German victory over Britain and was not circumspect with his belief. The man who replaced him, John Gill Wynant, would be the exact opposite of Kennedy, and his exploits are covered in detail in the fascinating audible book, Citizens of London. After experiencing a night of the Blitz, Londoners would find Wynant walking among them, asking what help he could give. On December 6th, Colonel William J. Donovan, Roosevelt's special representative to the Allies, left Washington and visited with representatives in London, Athens, Cairo, Sofia, and Belgrade. His message was, The U.S. is about to help in a very tangible way, and the proof was coming soon. Donovan also gathered detailed information about each country's needs, and his insights contributed to the Lend-Lease Bill sent to Congress on December 17th of that year. Donovan's further exploits as the Director of the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS, America's first national intelligence agency, can be enjoyed from the audible book Wild Bill Donovan. He is considered the father of the CIA. Next time, we'll head back to North Africa. General Richard O'Connor had everything in place for Operation Compass. As news of the British offensive reaches Rome, Mussolini is at his lowest point, and more and more of Italy's civilians and soldiers expect and are even expectant for a coup d'etat. Alas, no one either stepped up to lead the revolution or offered themselves up as a replacement. Meanwhile, Greek soldiers continue pushing their antagonists towards the sea, and Metexas continues to avoid the spotlight. In Athens, only King George II and General Papagos are there on a balcony, waving to the cheering crowds. 
Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So we got our one and probably only snowstorm this winter, a real one. Um, So that allowed me to come home and finish this episode up real quick. Um, I just want to thank the latest members of the podcast. So thank you to Gareth, Andrew, David, Philip, Timothy, Edwin, Con, Alistair, Simon, Tobias, Andrew, Mark, Lars, Jason, Kyle, and Charles. So thank you very much. I really do appreciate your support, and I hope you've enjoyed the three episodes i put out so far. Um, And I hope everyone noticed the two little Audible books I slid in at the end of this uh, episode. They're really good books. I think you'll enjoy them. Um, Another one that you definitely want to check out is called The Phantom Major. Check it out on Audible. It's It's a story that you will really enjoy. And for the members out there, um, there really wasn't an audible book on Billy Mitchell or anything like that, but there was one semi-related. It's called The Millionaire's Unit, so you might want to check that out on Audible. It centers around um, six members of the Yale Flying Club. These were young men in college um, who were literally at the top of the socioeconomic ladder in America, and they had a belief that because of, of where they were at in society, they were expected to give of themselves. So when World War One starts, they volunteered to go over and uh, fly combat over France. So it's an amazing story. Some of them go on to do amazing things. Some of them don't come back, but they have a lot of uh, different adventures. And you really get a feel for what was going on in World War I as far as the uh, air war was concerned. So I hope you check that out. I will be back as soon as I can, and we will start the first episode, uh, which will probably be several, of um, Operation Compass. Take care, everyone. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.